Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. It's always so cool to hear from folks in this growing community. This week, we heard from Steve in D.C., who said, our program is for all people who like to hear a range of thoughtful views from different perspectives without overzealous rhetoric. The host and the guests are excellent. Thank you very much. (laughs) He says, uh, there are very few places today where one can listen to thoughtful Democrats and Republicans and religious leaders and regular folks talk about interesting topics without advocating an extreme position. More discussions like this would go a long way to resolve what divides us. Thank you so much, Steve. That is really nice of you to share with us. Really appreciate that. And yeah, that's what we're working towards. And with that, I am your host. Glad to be working to rebuild the political center with our co-host and co-producer, Emily Special Ops Matthews. Emily, so good (laughs) to hang out with you. How are you doing? Good to see you. Doing well. How are you guys doing? Good, good, good. And our guest today, it's so It's my pleasure to welcome Michael Ware. Michael launched onto the scene as one of the youngest staffers in President Obama's administration. And I think I heard this right, perhaps uh, one of the youngest staffers in the modern history of the White House, where he served in the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships from 2009 to 2012, and then led religious outreach for President Obama's reelection campaign. During 2020, uh, the presidential campaign, Michael served as senior advisor to Not Our Faith PAC, a bipartisan effort that made a Christian case against the reelecting of Donald Trump. Today, Michael is the founder of Public Square Strategies, a consulting and research firm at the intersection of faith and public life. Michael is senior fellow at the Trinity Forum and has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, Christianity Today, and made other major publications. He's also an author of, among other contributions, one of the best books I've read in the last couple of years, Reclaiming Hope, and has a newsletter of the same name that I highly recommend, as well as a recent report he co-wrote for Trinity titled Christianity, Pluralism, and Public Life in the United States. I could go on and on. I've been going on and on for too, too long already, but it's, uh, there's seriously so, more, uh, so many more accomplishments I could point to, but we got to get into the conversation at some point. So Michael Ware, thank you for joining us. How are you? <laughs> Doing really well. It's good to be with you. Yeah, yeah. So uh, let's just dive right in. I've heard you mention your mom, Genevieve, of course, but I've also um, I've also heard you talk about your grandfather. I think you call him Papa in, in numerous places. Can you share what kind of influence they each had on you? Oh, that's such an interesting, interesting question. So my my grandfather is sort of the looming, you know, human personal influence in my life. He was an incredible man, uh, served in World War II, came back, was a kind of towering civic, in my eyes, you know, he was he was a civically minded uh, kind of person, the kind of person that you'd go to if you had a, had a problem or needed help, I should say, from uh, Buffalo, New York. And so, uh, and so I grew up in Buffalo. My grandfather lived there for most of his life. And he was really a father figure uh, for me. And so I, I think it's from him that I, I get my civic impulse. You know, he, I didn't grow up in a very political family, certainly not a partisan one, uh, but this sense of community and obligation was something that that I grew up with and that, that he gave to me. Um, you know, my mother, such an interesting question. I'm, I'm really a- asked uh, about her. Uh, a, a few, you know, my, my mother, um, I think, had a life set out for herself that uh, pretty early on the story changed. So uh, she had left her job to 
raise kids at home and then found out that uh, our financial situation as a family wasn't as good as she had been led to believe and uh, ended up having to go back to work, became a single mother. My parents were divorced when I was young. And I saw my mother in a situation not uh, not of her choosing, having to scrap, uh, scrape together resources just to make life work in some way. And so uh, it, it, there was obviously an influential person in my life and also taught me quite a bit about what it means to make it as part of the working class in America and what government resources uh, mean when you need them and why people uh, why people need them um, and gave me a perspective about poverty about working class issues that I probably wouldn't uh, that I might not have otherwise yeah yeah and we'll certainly get into uh, some of the political conclusions that you arrived at or, or some of the political positions that you were able to support because some of those values that were shaping earlier in in your life, I was curious too, Emily was curious too about your um, religious formation. So, uh, yeah, so I, I grew up um, in Buffalo in a big Italian family where it just seemed like you were born Catholic and <laughs> everyone I knew was Catholic uh, uh, growing up for, for a long, you know, for, for most of my early childhood, of course. Um, but Buffalo itself growing up was a pretty, pretty Catholic community. You know, I look back at it now and see that there were degrees of religious commitment among people. But, but growing up, it just, it just seemed like, okay, this is what everyone is. And it seemed to me that growing up, it was like a religion of sort of cultural milestones and uh, it was a it was a Catholicism of fish fries and, uh, you know, your favorite saints being the ones associated with the best holidays. Um, now, my, my grandfather would say that, you know, it was the Lord who saw him through World War Two and he'd have stories attesting to that. And I could think now back to aunts who would sit in the corner of the living room, uh, you know, thumbing their rosaries. But um, but as a adolescent and teenager, I kind of thought this is family sort of tradition. Uh, this isn't uh, religious belief so much as it is sort of habit. My sister, who's five, six years older uh, than me, became a Christian, identified herself as a Christian a few years before I did. She started attending a church. She uh, met some folks at the supermarket where she worked, a young married couple, and was drawn to them, and through that was introduced to the church, and then became more and more involved, and so all of a sudden I had like an evangelist next door, <laughs> like literally the room over uh, from me, and there's a longer story to tell here, but the... So, somebody shared the book of Hezekiah with you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, as, as you can tell, I'm still not over, still not over <laughs> that one. Uh, yeah. uh, but uh, so you're referring to I, I, I um, my sister took me to a youth group meeting and uh, one of her one of her friends came up to me knowing I wasn't a Christian and asked me what my favorite book of the Bible was. And before I could answer, said the book of Hezekiah. And I said, oh, gosh, that's my favorite, too. You know, just trying to get through the conversation. And it wasn't until years later I discovered that that book doesn't exist. And you, you like get to Malachi. You're like, wait, where's Hezekiah? Yeah, it's like the meanest thing that you could do. Um, but, but so I, I get out of that youth group um, and on my way out, uh, it obviously did not like it very much. But on my way out, there was a volunteer there who was handing out tracts of Romans, uh, mm. Paul's letter to the Romans. And instead of throwing it out, I took it home and read it and read it over again. And it changed my life. Three days later, I told my sister in the car as we were driving, uh, she was dropping me off that I had given my life to Christ. And uh, as I already said, I had these sort of civic interests before I became a Christian. After I became a Christian, I thought for initially, well, now I need to go to seminary, become a pastor. You just kind of want to do the, the most religious thing you could think of. And 
thankfully my pastor back home was like, you know, Michael, look around, there are Christians who aren't pastors. And, and I thought, yeah. well, that's a very keen observation. Um, and so early on in my life, the sort of vocational question was, you know, what does it mean to be faithful in public things? Uh, and that led me to DC, that led me to George Washington University. It's eventually what, what led me to meeting and then working for uh, President Obama. And it's, you know, continued to be the, the central question of, of my life. Yeah, I have a couple of follow-ups. I mean, things that I was thinking just in all of that, you know, you mentioned your mom um, making it on her own and, and how that kind of shaped, I'm sure we'll get into that later, but your political thoughts on, you know, welfare or, you know, I can relate. I'm a moderate conservative, but my dad grew up, you know, in working class family, single mom, they did not have much at all. And I know that she temporarily went on assistance, you know, and, and those programs with the, with the goal to get off then. But, you know, when she right, couldn't sure. stand on her own two feet, there's something really great about that. Um, and it's a way that we can certainly love our neighbors and the vulnerable. But it, I was also going to say with, you know, Catholicism being so cultural up there, that's diff so different for me, because being in the South, it's the Christian or, you know, the Christian evangelical culture, which I, I was part of kind of in the 90s growing up and then, you know, kind of had to develop my own beliefs and I've challenged kind of a lot, so many things. My faith has remained intact, but I feel like I've challenged a lot of the stuff that's cultural Christianity versus actual Christianity. And, you know, we have so many self-help Christian books out and commentary, which is great, but what really changed my life, Romans also changed my life, but just reading the Bible front to back and actually really getting into it and challenging everything and you know, for me, that was definitely what changed my life. So I think that's that's really cool that Romans had such an impact on me. You both mentioned Romans. I'm curious, what was it about Romans for each of you that was life changing? That's a good question. Michael, do you want to go first? I'm, I'm thinking, you know, it's one of my favorite books. I, I don't know if I can put together a collect, you know. Well, I, I'll, I'll give you a teaser. For me, it was um, I, the first book in the New Testament that I read was James, and that basically was my ticket into the New Testament, which makes right. sense. And growing up Jewish, it starts out the first couple of verses yeah. to the 12 tribes. I'm like, hey, he's talking to me. Um, but then uh, <laughs> even more specifically to my Jewish formation, I started in Matthew. And by the fifth mm -hmm. chapter, uh, you know, this Jesus character was given what I recognized to be a Devar Torah. And it frankly, by the time I got to the end of it, I was like, this is hands down the most brilliant of our Torah, I'd have, which is like, mm -hmm. a, it's like a explanation of what we've been reading in, in, um, yeah. in the Torah. And this yeah. is the most brilliant. And I didn't connect it. I didn't know that this was the famous Sermon on the Mount. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, that, and then I just couldn't put the, I couldn't put it down. I just went to Revelation 22 within probably a 24 hour period. There's just so much, it is such a good outline of what the gospel is. I think that really, you know, clarified so many things for me because it is such a good summation of like you were saying everything that. You know. So what was it for you, Michael Romans, you mentioned. So I had all of the sort of pseudo intellectual one liners that 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 we have and that the culture gives, you know, religion is a crutch, you know, religion is for those that can't face reality. Religion doesn't have much substance to it. And all of that's like none of that holds up to Romans, you know, you know, yeah. like you could, mm -hmm. you could read through Romans and reject Jesus after you, after you read it, but you can no longer pretend like the question has not been asked. Like you can mm -hmm. no longer, like once you ring that bell, it is rung and you can no longer say there's no there, there. Um, and, and so th that was, that was really, you know, powerful, uh, really powerful to me. It also just, it's a sense-making book. You, you read it and it's something that you could hold up to reality and it fits, <laughs> you know, like it's like, oh, th this is, this is what things look like. Uh, yeah. You want answers? We have answers. Yeah. 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 That, that makes sense. I, I appreciate you sharing your testimony. I, one of the things I love about uh, when I've heard you share it is that uh, it's not, it doesn't become a fishing story. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, there's too many stories. Oh, I came kicking and screaming to the Lord and I was so down and out and on the brink. And, and it's not to say that those stories don't, don't happen, but, uh, oftentimes it seems like folks turn their five pound trout into a great white shark of a salvation story. So <laughs> I've always appreciated, uh, when I've heard you share it, 
But I, I wanted to jump right into Reclaiming Hope. In the book, you shared, I came of age during a time when the religious right had great influence and many Christians were coming to accept that some of the tactics of that movement actually caused damage to the witness of the American church. At the very time I became a Christian, it seemed many of my peers had an increasingly negative perception of Christians. The evangelical political leaders that dominated political news seemed like little like the evangelicals I knew and worshiped with in Buffalo or at my church in Washington. Yet those were the folks who had the Republican Party's ear. You know, when I read that, it's so different to when I first became a Christian. We were going to uh, the church we were attending. My kids were, we put our kids in a Christian school. Um, and the social political orthodoxy was even more strongly held than, you know, like you, you wouldn't hear a heated debate about baptism, although our church had a specific position on it, or or how to take communion, even though our church had a specific position on it. But if you said a negative word about Sarah Palin, or, you know, I mean, forget about like even uttering an ounce of support for Obama, you, you'd be taken into the Matthew 18, you know, how to deal with sinners process. So that's so it's so so you you it sounds like you experienced a very different, uh, more pluralistic, uh, politically pluralistic, when you first became a Christian. I think one thing that I've had to learn is, and this goes back to what Emily said, which is that I came to evangelicalism knowing what it, knowing what it was culturally and politically. And all of that was figured into, I knew all that before I made a commitment to Jesus. I think what, what many sort of millennials uh, who were raised in the church are going through is that uh, there was no distinction between the theological, the cultural, the political in their experience growing up. And then they came to understand, oh, oh, wait, like, I mean, similar to me growing up as a Catholic in Buffalo, you, you know, like, oh, there are Catholics who aren't blue collar labor union supporting Democrats. But I thought that was Catholicism. Oh. There are many like evangelicals are who are coming to understand, wait, like a belief in salvation was tied up with a certain Republican brand of politics. When I became a Christian, I saw the politics, but from the outside looking in, it was really clear to me that the predominant politics of evangelicalism was not synonymous with some of the core theological claims of evangelicalism as I was introduced to it. So, right, like there is no uh, direct sort of line between the, you know, the Bebbington quadrilateral yeah. and and support of the uh, and, and opposition to the estate tax. You know, like, <laughs> like that, that is those, those are separate judgments. Um, and so that was in some ways it was helpful to me. In other ways, I've had to my experience in evangelicalism has just been much better than those who um, the many who were raised as evangelicals and those who were in different, you know, my um, my evangelical church was led by a pastor with a PhD who was trained at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, who minored in college in political science, who was reading Dallas Willard and and reading. Richard Foster, um, that's not the whole of evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. Evangelicalism is a tremendously diverse movement in this country that comprises, you know, some, when, when I came to faith, uh, somewhere between a fifth and a quarter of the population, and some, you could even say higher than that if you include uh, other strains of sort of Protestantism in, in, in your definition of evangelical. So it's my, my approach to evangelicalism and my experience of evangelicalism has been one that disaggregates popular expressions of political expressions within evangelicalism from sort of the core theological commitments. I can relate to that. I mean, to an extent, I think growing up right outside of Atlanta, it's different than yes. other more rural parts of Georgia or, you know, the South. Um, so there's definitely a lot of that more, this is going to sound snobby, but intellectual overflow, you know, a lot of like the, um, those kinds of, of pastors. And I think my parents discovered um, a really great church later when I was in college. And funny enough, I ended up 
discovering Campus Crusade in college. I had heard and knew about it, but being super involved in Campus Crusade, which has a strong uh, PCA influence, Presbyterian Church of America, which funny enough was where my parents started going. Our lives were kind of changing at the same time. The pastor that I had in college at Crusade is now there, took over as the head pastor at their huge church in, in Duluth, Georgia. So it's just kind of this cool for, full circle thing. But it really, when you can kind of shed a lot of that cultural influence or, you know, things that are Christianese versus actual um, faith, I think that really is important. I think we definitely share that, which is cool. Yeah. And, and, you know, to bring it into very current events, I just saw a study, I think, uh, and it, it was David French who just wrote about yeah. it over the weekend that uh, 2016 compared to 2020, I'm guessing that you read it too, because you 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 referenced, Michael, the, the Bevington, uh, what do you call it again? The, um, yeah, the Bevington quadrilateral. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the, um, the stat that was uh, quoted was that there are more people who support Donald Trump. So the other people who support Donald Trump, a higher percentage of them identify as evangelicals. But when you dive a little bit deeper into the numbers, there are folks who are identifying now who are Trump supporters, who are identifying as evangelical, but they wouldn't, uh, once you ask other questions about, well, do you go to church? Do you believe in the Bible? Do you, you know, the things that would um, in the past have identified, were defining evangelical, they don't go to church. So it's a it's an interesting moment that we're in. Well, so I, I do think it's really important to identify the fact that this is the extension of something that has been developing over the last 50 years. This is not something that Trump created. Uh, David Campbell and Robert Putnam wrote in American Grace about exactly this. And well, if we are looking at religious and political dynamics solely through the lens of, of Donald Trump and what he did to our politics, we're going to be missing quite mm. a bit. It's a really good point. And the over-identification of Christianity with a particular political party well, did not just happen before Trump, but I have to say, like it was, it was cultivated by some of the same people who now are trying to put all of the blame on Donald Trump. But Donald Trump was building on an architecture that had been built by the religious right with whom many of these people consorted and supported um, for decades. <laughs> and so we have, to, we have to see that this architecture, um, yes, Donald Trump was like the most, he was the most blatant instrument to show what a misguided project that was, but it was misguided before Donald Trump. Now, prudentiality of our politics is not something that was invented or that just came. It's not like, I often hear people talk as if Donald Trump was the first time that they really had to really think about the, who they were voting for. And I wanna say you should have, there should have been more tension before Donald Trump. <laughs> um, I mean, just to use a specific example, Al Mohler wrote that in 2016, it was the first time that he had to uh, dedicate an ounce of mental energy. This is paraphrasing, but what he said is I'm, like, I'm not, if anything, I'm understating what he wrote. Uh, the first time he had to dedicate a, an ounce of mental energy to who he voted for in a presidential election. And I just, and look, there were there were specific, there were very difficult issues on the ballot before 2016, and so um, the, you know that Pew survey is important. Pew has been picking up on the ways in which, again, the over identification of Christianity with a particular brand of politics, especially on younger people, has been uh, pushing people away from the faith for for at least a couple decades. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think you referred to uh, political sectarianism. Um, we, we interviewed uh, Linda Feldman of the Christian Science Monitor on this very thing, how folks are taking their politics as religion. You know, so again, tying it into um, Trump supporters, they may not go to church, but they go to rallies. <laughs> you know, they, they may <laughs> not uh, have their kids baptized but there's there's uh, there's these other acts of not worship per se oh, yeah. but it does border on on worship you know or so the uh 
taking the secular and and vested, but this is not anything new in history to to for political movements or movements of empire to kind of hijack the language of of the Bible or um, use religious symbols. One one thing I will just say though is you know I think the the increasing sophistication of political technology, the ways in which politics is able to saturate our culture and our churches in ways that it just couldn't before really amplify mm. this, this dynamic. You referred to the concept of political sectarianism, which I think is just one of the most important sort of academic sort of frameworks that's been developed to describe our politics as it is in recent years. And it's been unfortunate it hasn't gotten the attention that it it should although you know a bunch of social scientists should know better than to release a defining framework uh <laughs> in december of 2020 uh in between the election and the insurrection <laughs> you know it's going to be there was a lot going on at the yeah, time a little bit but but they i would urge people to look it up it's a very brief sort of four or five page document that's signed on by, I think, about 16 of the leading social scientists in the country. And they define the particular kind of polarization, political polarization that we have today as political sectarianism, which is held up by three pillars. That is moralism, what I refer to as a a misplaced moralism. I I don't think moralism is a a bad thing if it's oriented in, in the right direction. The problem is we have a misplaced moralism othering so uh, so othering your political opponents and and uh, those who are sort of in your sights when it comes to the political arena and then an aversion a politics of aversion and i think this really helps clarify i think people often react to it's becoming hard to talk about things like polarization or civility the people now have this like fallback line of oh, you know, there was no golden age there. Were, and like, all that is true. But how about we focus on what's in front of us now? Like, I, I know. like we, mm-hmm. we don't need to say, let's go back to some other time in order to say that there is there are serious dysfunctions in the way that we're operating today. And how about we we look to the future and the kind of politics that we want to build moving forward? Yeah, yeah. When you shared that, uh, it was on another interview that I, I think you, you gave an interview in um, in August where you shared those three pillars of, of political sectarianism. And it made so much sense because just on, a, on an individual basis, that moralism, the primary, the primary moral, if, if you want to call it that, or the primary value is having the right degree of aversion or, or even hatefulness for right. those others. Um, right. And those others are so as broadly defined as anyone who's <laughs> who has one drop of difference or one drop of impure thoughts about Donald Trump in this case, since we're talking about him. Yeah. I, I, I want to go back to the book. Uh, you described something, and, and this is a sort of symbolic moment. You describe a historic meeting then-Senator Obama had with evangelical leaders in June of 2008. Uh, it seemed to reveal, for lack of a better word, the prejudices of some of the folks on the campaign, as well as some of the evangelical uh, evangelical leaders that were there, but for you, there seemed to be some small victories in that meeting, like in the prayer the attendees uh, participated mm-hmm. in at the end of the meeting. Can you describe that meeting if you remember it and what some of your takeaways were? Yeah, so the meeting was held in uh, right after uh, Barack Obama wrapped up the Democratic nomination, and it was with. It was in a Chicago high rise right by campaign headquarters with about 30 evangelical leaders. The fact that the meeting took place was a victory in itself. It sent the message, very clear message in my view, that he, he truly intended on being president for all Americans and that evangelicals were going to have a seat at the table, that conservatives were going to have a seat at the table. And there were people in that meeting that we knew were not going to vote for the president, that there was persuasion involved. We obviously hoped that there would be some, I mean, one thing that's helpful about being at a camp, on a campaign is that there's, there's no sort of mistaking sort of what, what your role is. You know, when I was faith outreach director for, for Barack Obama, it was helpful 
the, my in my job description was electing him. <laughs> you know, like there's yeah. no there's no like manipulation involved. There's no like if people. <laughs> I'm on your team. If, if, if I'm calling, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's 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 for that purpose. And so obviously, like a meeting like that is in the context of a presidential campaign, and like everyone knows that. So there's no like weird sort of. Um, but what it also was was an opportunity for evangelicals to speak and be heard by and be responded to uh, one of the two people who was gonna be the next president of the United States. Uh, there were, um, Franklin Graham yeah. was there, Bishop T.D. Jakes was there, heads of major evangelical institutions were there. I, I think I tell a story in, in my book, You know, the range of questions were on everything from poverty to climate change. It was particularly, you know, striking to me when one of the attendees said that resonated so much with the president's language and care for the vulnerable. But for pro-life evangelicals, what was difficult was they didn't see why, why that ethic didn't extend to the unborn. And it wasn't a political guy. There were no reporters there. The president took the question seriously. The question was asked earnestly. And so I walk out of that, that meeting just thinking like, obviously everyone didn't agree on everything walking out. I, I'm pretty sure the majority of the folks there didn't vote for Barack Obama, but you left that meeting thinking, oh, this is, and just Barack Obama made me think this way many times over my years of working for him and, and following him. And obviously we'll probably get to other aspects of the book where this wasn't my main takeaway, but a meeting like that, I left thinking, this is what Christianity and the role of Christianity in public life and how how Christians interact in public, this is what it, this is how a viable vision for the and 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 more healthy version of what that could look like in the 21st century. At a time when a lot of the narratives were either on the far right, like a doomsday, you know, we're losing power, gotta like grasp on, or on the left, what Barack Obama decried as the practical absurdity of asking religious people, demanding religious people that they leave their faith outside of politics. For me is when I came to faith and and early in my faith walk and, and to now, both of those options are are untenable to me, a sort of a domineering, imposing Christianity in a pluralistic society, or one in which uh, religious commitments are muted or excised. Um, neither of those seems to, A, live up to our commitments as a government and as a liberal democracy, and then B, most importantly, that they don't seem to, to fit with the, the, the call of the gospel and, and the reality of the world in which we live. So yeah, a couple follow-up things to that. I think, you know, you said people get all upset about bringing faith into the politics, but the funny thing is everybody brings their faith into politics. If they're unbelievers, if they're believers, you know, there's people want the far left wants, you know, the government to control and, and tell everybody else how to live. The far right wants the same, but from what they think is a biblical perspective. But I think what you're saying about, you know, liberal democracy and the old tradition of that is give people the freedom, just, you know, protect people's rights. And that's the point of the government's why I'm, you know, stand where I stand on that. But um, two things I was going to ask you about, you know, you brought up the pro-life thing, how that created tension potentially within the White House once you were finally in the White House. Um, and kind of what was, if you feel comfortable sharing Obama's response to, you know, would he welcome your opinions on that? Um, that's question number one. Well, to answer that, and then we'll, we'll get to my next follow-up. Yeah, so I think like the the president had identified early on that any story that, that you were going to tell about turning the page on the culture wars or that kind of thing, if you didn't confront abortion, then the whole project was kind of a farce. In other words, like you can't say you're going to turn the page on on the culture wars and pursue abortion politics in the same way it always has been pursued. His sort of effort, which was really like self-initiated, 
five months into his presidency, less than five months into his presidency, was to go to Notre Dame and give what became a highly sort of, even before he showed up, a very controversial commencement address. And what, you know, again, what was stunning to me is, I mean, traditionally, if you're a Democrat, you head into a religious space like that, then your aim is to, uh, first of all, most Democrats want to choose to put themselves in that position. If they were going to choose to do so, they'd try to focus on something, just try and find a sliver of agreement on like the most favorable terrain. So you're going to a Catholic university, give a speech, you know, Notre Dame has a long history of nuclear disarmament stuff. So give a speech on nuclear disarmament or give a speech on creation care. And instead, you know, the president, you know, in some ways to the, you know, um, uh, to the dismay of his uh, handlers. All of his advisors weren't <laughs> on board with this. The president says, you know, I'm, I'm going to give a, I'm going to give a talk on abortion. That, that's what all the controversy is about, about me coming anyway. So I'm going to uh, uh, approach that issue. And he gave a, gave a speech on uh, what he called reducing, reducing the number of women seeking abortions. Mm-hmm. Now, even this was a significant battle, which, you know, I tell the story, he actually changed the language on Air Force One on his way to South Bend because political staff. Um, so we had an abortion fight during the during the political convention and political staff had hammered out with all the advocacy groups, you know, quote unquote, a compromise, which was the language in the 2008 Democratic platform is reducing the need for abortion, which is one of those compromises which upsets everyone and satisfies no one, right? Like the the, the pro-choice left doesn't want to uh, doesn't want to set as a north star reducing uh, abortions, and those pro-lifers on the right don't don't want to uh, don't want to say that there's a need for abortion. They don't think there's a need for it. So so that's the language that gets put into the president's uh, speech, and he goes he goes wait I'm uh, I'm not giving a speech about but like, I, I want to reduce abortions without violating Roe v. Wade. So why don't I just say that? And that's what he did. You read the speech and he, he gives a pretty moving speech, drawing firm lines about what his commitments are. He never sort of suggested he was anything but pro-choice, but also, I mean, it seems conventional now because again, you have quite a few never Trump sort of folks who are, who are now all about reducing abortions and that kind of thing. It's important, like no one gave him, I, like uh, part of me is, you know, where were these people in 2009? Like the, right. the like, but like it would have been helpful, would have been helpful then. Um, but in 2009, he gave this message about uh, we could strengthen adoption in this country. We could uh, increase maternal care. We could end pregnancy discrimination in the workplace. And it was, it was, um, it was a way to step in. So, uh, now I, I tell that story. What happened as his administration went on is abortion got caught up in Affordable Care Act politics. And there was, you know, I, I have a whole chapter on this in, in Reclaiming Hope, but like the short the short version is that d- Democrats often tend to think that these cultural issues can be waved away and like really won't be problems. And they always, they are always the problem at the end of the day, right? Like everything had been negotiated, a corn husker kickbacks or whatever it was like all that was done and but what was the 72 hour crisis it was oh we have like a dozen and a half pro life democrats who won't vote for this bill unless it mm-hmm. unless it's uh, unless it prohibits funding for abortion um that that fight no one was satisfied with that and then of course we had the contraception mandate and that kind of blew up the hopes for common ground being built on abortion during the president's time in office, the, the, the strain of those policy debates that ended up bringing in abortion politics, both on the right and the left sort of made, you know, when we came into office, there was a vision of like rolling out a abortion reduction slate of policies. And, you know, in my mind, you know, having a press conference that had, Richard Land uh, and Cecile Richards on a podium together, you know, like like staunch pro-lifers and staunch pro-choicers saying uh, this is a way forward that we didn't get everything we want, but this is a positive way. And and by, by the time we got to 2011, 2012, that was just it, it just wasn't going to wasn't going to happen. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, we just touched on this, but when you were in President Obama's White House, Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships, you had described an experience early on in the administration when an, a development event for young staffers after introducing yourself saying, you know, the office that you worked in, a senior staffer interrupted you and began a rant um, about the separation of church and state, what he deemed to be the impropriety of the whole endeavor. Could you kind of break that down for us? Yeah, I, I mean, it was like, a, so this is ostensibly a, a leadership development day for White House staffers and sort of randomly assigned a table. And, and I, I can't remember if I if I actually put names in the book. So um, <laughs> no, you, you I think you just said uh, the second most senior staffer at that meeting. Yeah, so so the most senior staffer at that meeting is even more senior today, <laughs> um, and so and and everyone kind of knew that that. So it was so I am a, a probably a 21, 22 year old staffer at that time, just trying to like, I mean, you know, cultivate my leadership, learn something, you know. I I, I and um, so young, yeah, very young, and there was the second most the second most senior staffer who you know, you, you would hope would view his role as serving the the staffers that were lower on the totem, the totem pole in, in that and like being supportive. And instead, like, you know, we just went around introducing ourselves in our roles. And I, I literally just described the position the president had appointed me to, which was, I'm at the faith-based office. We oversee centers across the federal government. And, and, and this... The, this guy who works for the same person I do. Yeah. You're like, go talk to Obama about it. He you don't breaks like it. into a tirade about, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, that structure really makes it difficult to get rid of it, doesn't it? You, you, <laughs> you know, really puts the teeth of faith and and and, and exactly right, Emily. I was like, take it up, take it up with him. Like, who am I? Who am I defending myself? too like um like if i need to defend myself to you then then yeah take it up take it up with the guy who who put both of us here but but here's what's and and, and this was true in that meeting it was also true throughout my time in government and i see it today which is it's really important we we understand when we come to political disagreement. And this is both in community with one another. It's also the people you're watching on TV, the people who are in decision-making roles. And that it's when it comes to issues of faith, there is so often an ideological pretense when actually what's motivating are very deep sort of wounds and personal experiences mm -hmm. and you know, the person had a, a mean Catholic school teacher uh, when they were in the second grade and that experience uh, uh, stuck with them. Uh, they had a parent who converted to a religion and, and wasn't the same anymore. I mean, all of these very deep, and then people bring that to politics. Now, that doesn't mean that the thing to do is when you're in a political argument, say, you know, what's your deep personal wound here? It's <laughs> <laughs> some 20-year-old kid talking. Yeah, to the lesson <laughs> is, though, our politics would be so much healthier if we tried to carry in our minds what, uh, what Parker Palmer wrote, which is that we have a politics that's full of brokenhearted people. Mm. And we have a political culture now that is so good at dehumanizing people. And uh, we need to recognize just how deeply human our politics is. And uh, I tried to remember that even when I was in very serious sort of disagreements when I was uh, working in government, I try to uh, try to remember that now. Now that doesn't solve all the problems. Like you know, deeply wounded people with power can hurt people, <laughs> um, and and so that's not yeah. to sort of spiritualize the whole thing. It is to again understand that your politics is about people, 
<laughs> it's not just about abstract sort of concepts and and sort of maneuvering your way into uh, imposing your your will. It's 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 about building community together. It's mm-hmm. about self governance. I agree. Did you feel like that was kind of an isolated incident or was it something that you just kind of had to get used to? And do you think Obama sort of knew these kinds of things, you know, or, or had had a take on it? Yeah, I mean, so this person, they had no, they were, uh, again, a relatively senior person, but a senior person with no role in policymaking. Now, what I will say is, I do think we have a structural problem in our politics which is that the way this is, no matter what administration, there are so many positions that matter that have to be filled somehow. And where administrations go to fill those positions uh, has, has consequences. And so like just the, you know, I saw so often real decisions happening at the level of the low to mid-level staffer who was a grassroots organizer a, a year before making, you know, whatever, like $10 an hour, <laughs> who's now in a position that, yes, there are like hypothetically layers of authority over that person. But I mean, I'll give you one example. We were <laughs> there, there was a very well-known pastor who ran uh, a prisoner reentry program that was celebrating its like 10th or 20th anniversary and requested a letter of commendation from the president. Like a very, the president doesn't know what's happening. It's something that runs through like a bureaucratic process. Usually it's like super simple, but there is, there's an office of presidential correspondence that runs a vet of the religious leader, and uh, just to be clear, they'd run a vet of anyone the president is writing a letter to. So it could be right. the head of a nonprofit. It could be, and so so it, it wasn't it wasn't a vet because he was a religious person. It was a vet because I yeah, just want to yeah. be very clear. It was a vet because he was requesting a letter from the president. Well, yeah, the, the, the this was a person who had. Well, I'll say this person was in the meeting with then Senator Obama in the Chicago high rise. This was a person who had met with the president in the Oval Office. This was like the horse had left the barn. <laughs> and, and the decision to let the horse out of the barn was made by President Obama. <laughs> um, and yet this low-level staffer who had no religious experience, who was empowered functionally to make this decision, but the president didn't know who he was. And this really was, but a vet came back, the religious leader had said something about some issue, and it was a like a like a, a months long bureaucratic struggle in which all kinds of like people had so to, Washington. to adjudicate this decision from someone who was like a grassroots organizer in Nevada, um, you know, for for nine months for a presidential campaign. All of that to like that's a that may seem like a small a small decision, but what is the message sent throughout government and and how does, what are the ripples of the decision to say that this religious leader is disqualified by virtue of A, B, or C from receiving contact from the president on the basis of this person's decision? That happens at the policy level, happens at the political level. And the main point is that I left government thinking about the ways in which our bureaucracy is uh, filled, the way in which political appointments are filled, and how we are cultivating public servants. What is the character that we want to cultivate for those who will be in public leadership? And maybe that's a different process than the kinds of people that we need to cultivate uh, for campaign work and hand the hand-to-hand combat of politics. And yet we don't really have two pipelines for that, that work. You know, the people who work at Center for American Progress or work at Heritage, it's a revolving door between that yeah. and, and the political campaigns. Right. But those are two very different environments. And I worked in both, you know, I worked in government and I worked in campaign. They're just, they're two very different environments. 
Yeah, two different animals. And it might not always be the, the right fit for the same person. I, I wanna, there's so much more I could ask you about your time in the White House and on the 2012 campaign, uh, but I, I know we're starting to run short on time. Uh, so I, I'd like to ask you about the report that was recently published. Uh, you co-wrote for the Trinity Forum. Uh, it's called Christianity, Pluralism, and Public Life in the U.S. You interviewed 51 Christian leaders, mostly pastors, to explore how our leaders, uh, political and religious leaders, and the rest of us can contend with social, political, and religious pluralism in our culture. What So uh, what what were you hoping to achieve with the report? And then what what were some of the main takeaways? Yeah, so so the main the main contention driving my work right now is the desire to place the resources of Christianity in direct contact with the challenges that we're facing today publicly. When I think the experience of many, both Christians and non-Christians, has been that the faith is primarily about personal edification, enjoyment, sort of community building, and in the case of Christianity, a sort of um, social capital, a sort of way to signify your place in society without, while being irrelevant to reality. <laughs> um, and so you could have entire conversations about pluralism or entire conversations about public policy yeah, entire conversations about how we treat one another in public. And Christianity, for many, has no application because once you get into public, then, you know, there are different sort of logic paths to get there, but they all basically end up in the place that God is just like ill-equipped for, for, for public stuff. That When you get into politics, that's corrupt. And Right. This was like the Trump logic, which is like mm -hmm. you can't worry about being Christian in politics. Allow me to be your bully for you. And I'll I'll protect the space for you to be Christian in your personal life. Like that's the best you could hope for. The best you could hope for is uh, that you have that you carve out space to like be Christian in your marriage and with your finances, but politics, you, you need a bully there. That is actually a very similar line of logic that liberals and progressives uh, have, have used for Christians, which is like, your faith doesn't hold up here. And so it was a, like a great irony of history that in 2016, all of a sudden you had all these progressives beating Christians over the head, metaphorically uh, saying, you know, what happened to your values? You know, what happened? And and I think many Christians were like, wait, you, you spent the last several decades telling me that my faith has no place in public. Now you're asking where my values are? They're, they're at home where you, where you said I should keep them. So the report and so much else of my work is what are the resources within Christianity, both practices ways of thinking about other people, ways of thinking about our place in God's creation, ways of thinking about what is ultimate and what is prudential that actually uh, prepare us and equip us for pluralistic life. Yeah. And so that touches on everything from an understanding of uh, the idea that each and every person is made in the image of God, it comes from a uh, Christian concept of hospitality and what that looks like. It comes from drawing on the lessons of Jeremiah 29, this idea that we ought to seek the peace and welfare of the city to which uh, uh, God has, has planted us. Uh, even though the exiles were, were, not, were not placed in a, in a friendly environment. <laughs> and so I co-authored the report with Amy Black and you know, our, our hope was to provide Christians with resources to reorient their thinking toward pluralism so that they were not thinking about pluralism primarily as a source of threat or as a reason why they must sort of vacate their beliefs, but actually that this, this emerging pluralistic, increasingly pluralistic America was actually a call to draw on the resources of, of their faith in maybe a way that they hadn't before. And then the second aim was to help civic leaders uh, secular leaders uh, understand 
that the, you know, we still live in a predominantly Christian country in terms of demographics. The vast majority of Americans identify as Christian. And the way to uh, cultivate a healthy pluralism is not to exclude Christian ideas, and therefore, in some like fundamental way, Christians themselves from that project of building. <laughs> so, so, like a, a major hope uh, of our report was to provide civic leaders with an understanding that there are resources within Christianity which are can support some of the goals that some of the basic goals that civic leaders might have, and just having a harmonious society and having a society uh, where people care for one another and that that, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's a really informative report, both, uh, you know, for for religious folks as well as uh, secular folks. It's packed with references and and uh, stats and surveys. Uh, so really commend it. You can get it off the Michael Ware website. I think it's uh, just Michael Ware, uh, W-E-A-R dot com. Worth the read, worth the time to to look into. So before we wrap, I, I wanted to ask you, you support World Relief, which is worldrelief.org. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that organization? Yeah, World Relief is the humanitarian arm of the National Association of Evangelicals. And, you know, especially, you know, they're kind of on the front lines of, of two, really now three significant crises we're facing. The um, refugee crisis in the Northern Triangle, the uh, Haitian crisis, and, and then they're going to be keen in supporting the integration of Afghan refugees. And so uh, I've worked with them over the years. They have a wonderful new CEO who's supported by a, a vice president for government affairs, a woman by the name of Jenny Yang, who is just one of the exemplars of Christian civic leadership in the country, in my view. And Matthew Sorens, who is a longtime leader and voice around uh, issues of immigration reform and that kind of thing. And so uh, World Relief is doing great public leadership. They're doing great actual service delivery. Um, and I'm happy to support them along with, you know, an array of, of organizations that are going to be needed to confront these uh, these challenges and, and the great human need that, that that's there right now. Great organization. It's worldrelief.org if you want to get more information or find out how to support it. Uh, now I have one more question and one important piece of business. Do you have any questions for us? Sure. You know, I, I'm interested in areas in our politics where you think a faith engagement would be most helpful right now. Where where, where are the greatest needs that that, that that you see right now for constructive constructive engagement? You are, you're leaving that up to me. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, it, it's clear we've we've talked about this so many times, Michael, but the, the pro-life issue is so important to me. And I mean, we talked, you know, when we did Biden Republicans this summer and or last summer about how that issue is so important to me. And I think you kind of hit on sometimes Democrats can have a tunnel vision on that and not realize how key that is to so many more conservative voters you know, it was something I had to really wrestle with in voting for Biden this time. It was my first time voting for a Democrat for president. And I think it's just important to have, I don't know if this is answering your question at all, but to really work on initiatives to communicate what you just communicated about Obama and the, the fight to, and I know you're doing this, but the fight to message better on that and message that there are other ways, and David French has hit on this as well, to personally create an environment where abortion rates go down. And that it's not like we're pro-abortion, but that, you know, we just have different approaches to it. I don't know if that was your question, if that kind of falls into the realm of what you're asking. Oh, absolutely. I think it's, I think it's necessary. I, I will say I had, President Biden certainly has every resource available to him, his own personal history, the fact that he has a long track record on these issues and knows sort of the the history of debate here. He's not just in sort of, uh, he doesn't have to be someone who's shaped simply by the moment when it comes, uh, but uh, he has not brought those resources to bear as president in my view. And now we're in a situation where, where this issue is now increasingly at the center of our politics. And 
I'm I'm watching very closely to see if he understands the, the choice that he has uh, between pouring more sort of gasoline on the fire or having an empathetic approach that at least hears the mm-hmm. best, most sincere claims of, quote unquote, the other side. That's what he's done for so much of his career. I mean, that's what won him. It won over people like me. Right. You know, I think it's politically smart, too, if nothing else, because, you know, the base is going to vote for you no matter what, if you're the nominee. And so winning over uh, there are a lot of people that were friends of mine that were like, I just can't vote for him because he and he's jumped on the Hyde Amendment and who knows, you know, but it's politically smart, if nothing else, I think, for him yeah, to yeah. kind of work on that. No, uh, I, uh, yeah, I agree. I, I would refer folks. There's a great it, like it's important so often when this issue comes up, it's helpful on both the right and the left, it, it is convenient to act as if this is an issue which only affects white evangelicals. And yes, white evangelicals tend to care about this issue a great deal. You read the Texas Monthly uh, essay from the last couple of weeks on why we saw uh, so many Hispanic, uh, Hispanic uh, voters in Texas and elsewhere vote for Trump and vote for Republicans in 2020. And you'll see even Democratic groups, they don't want to say it too loudly because they're, they're, they're worried that they'll get phone calls from, from others. But even Democratic advisor groups have to say, look, this issue is causing us trouble. Actually, Emily, very, very quickly, I'll just add here, you know, once again, and this is, it was very obvious, like this was an issue in 2008 and 2012 and and yet the party seems to forget until uh, you know three weeks before the election i'm getting calls from campaign folks saying what can we do on this issue we're we're running up against it in our door-to-door knocking in what are supposed to be democratic areas and and i'm like well you can't you you can't concoct so like like the campaign actually has to give you something to work with. And so if it's coming up, I, I'm glad to get the call, glad to be helpful. But you need to also report that up the chain through the through the campaign. <laughs> um, yeah. Like you can't you can't just uh, you need to be able to deliver a message that's being affirmed by the candidate, not just put out propaganda. And so so, yeah, we could go on on that. But I I certainly agree. It's an area where on both the right and the left, a mm-hmm. sort of sincere Christian contribution would be would be really helpful. Well, we saw just recently here in California, the numbers reaffirmed one of the things that you're talking about. That's right. That in particular, uh, Latino men uh, were not support were uh, were not supportive, or I should say, were supportive of the recall, uh, which means they, you know, they didn't go in in, in Democrats' favor uh, in this recall election. And one of the issues uh, was the inhospitable environment for uh, folks, uh, religious folks. You know, I so when you asked that question, the first thing that came to mind are the missed opportunities. Some of those missed opportunities in Obama's administration, for example, there were religious organizations that could have been allies uh, that mm-hmm. could have made it easier to pass the Affordable Care Act, uh, but found themselves up against. Um, other values that were uncompromising. I think that's an opportunity, especially now when there's any number of folks who have for their entire lives considered themselves to be conservatives that are now without a political home, right? Um, and for me, my conservatism is based on on my, my deference to the authority of scripture, but that also opens up the door for Issues that I could work hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder with with folks who've considered themselves uh, liberals or progressives their whole lives. You know, our church, fortunately, we have a church in Pasadena that is doing great work uh, in in the area for um, the folks without homes right now. They're doing great work. Uh, and it doesn't look like a conservative issue. But if you're reading your Bible, it's a very conservative issue Mm -hmm. for folks that that are immigrants. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there there are any number of things that I think we can find common cause on, uh, you know, so there is a place for that. If if it's not if it's if it's OK for me 
to have these transcendent beliefs that inform my political positions. But if to your point, the um, I'm going to get pushback merely for believing in God, then uh, there's it's only sign of, of trouble to come. So, uh, but but I'm hopeful. Uh, I, I think that um, you know I, I I think there's an opportunity for reclaiming hope. <laughs> uh, speak, speaking of which, how can we find you? Your reclaiming hope newsletter, your work with Public Square Strategies, or any of your other work. Yeah, it's great. So um, my website is just michaelware.com. Uh, my wife and I run the newsletter you mentioned, which uh, runs multiple times a week. And you could sign up for that at reclaiminghope.substack.com. And then you could you could usually find me on Twitter. And my my handle is just Michael R. Ware. Um, so hope to see you on there as well. That's awesome. Well, this is a real pleasure getting to hang out with you. Uh, I will be in D.C. pretty soon. So I want to look you up and buy you a beer or something. And uh, thanks, Emily, for joining us. This is a treat having you. And uh, as always, if you like the show, please hit that subscribe button. Leave us a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts. Most importantly, tell us a friend about us. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.